Good morning. morning. It's very good to be with you. Before I launch into my sermon, I want to offer my word of thanks to God for Aubrey Spears and the gift he is to this church and the Christian community in Harrisonburg and Harrisonburg itself. I am very grateful. Thanks be to God. The title of my sermon, my titles, at least for me, tend to be pretty important, whether they seem that way to you or not by the time I finish. It's a long title and a fairly long subtitle. The title is, Welcome All and Proclaim the Kingdom of God with Boldness and Unhindered Openness. Let me read that again. Welcome all and proclaim the kingdom of God with boldness and unhindered openness. And the subtitle, to be more specific, is Toward Compassion, Friendship, and Faithfulness in Relation to Homosexuals. A year and a half ago, in an essay on homosexuality, I wrote, I wish I could devote almost 100% of my time on this issue to helping us discern how we can, in very real ways, know what it means to be loving and supportive of real gays and lesbians who are among us, with names, faces, and very particular lives, after having affirmed the traditional view of marriage. I'm very grateful to Aubrey for the invitation to speak here today to begin to fulfill this commitment. But perhaps I should begin by saying, I was not always where I am now on the issue of homosexuality. No, for about seven years, from 1983 to 1989 or so, I tilted heavily in an affirming or revisionist direction on the issue of homosexuality. Beginning in 1983, I was part of an ecumenical study group in Urbana, Illinois, for about five years. One of the issues we discussed was homosexuality. For that discussion, I read, among other things, books by John Boswell and Robin Scroggs, books that have influenced very many theologians and Christians on the issue of homosexuality. Both of them mostly convinced me that the New Testament was not relevant to our current discussions regarding committed same-sex relationships, what would now be gay and lesbian marriages. But in the late 1980s, I began discovering substantive scholarship that challenged the views I had mostly come to embrace. I believe it was Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar, both in a scholarly article on Romans 1 and a brief overview essay on homosexuality and the Bible, who began to challenge my revisionist views, but then followed scholarship by Thomas Schmidt, David Wright, Mark Smith, and many others. But perhaps most convincingly in terms of biblical scholarship was the work of Robert Gagnon in his encyclopedic work, especially his book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice. Walter Wink, in a very critical review of this book, referred to it as the neutron bomb of conservative scholarship. But as I continued to study, I read not only biblical studies, but science, social science, history, etc. And I read and continued to read many different viewpoints, literally dozens of books and hundreds of articles and chapters of books. 
One point of the culmination of my study was to co-author a book on homosexuality, which was published seven years ago as Reasoning Together, a Conversation on Homosexuality. Now, I pray that I have not mentioned all of this in order to parade my knowledge before you. I hope I have rather named it for at least three reasons. First, I believe this is what someone who is called to be an academic for the sake of the church should do. Second, I have felt compelled to deeply wrestle with this set of issues because I believe the issues involved were genuinely complex. And third, I have come to believe that the weight of scholarship can clearly be seen to affirm the traditional understanding of marriage. Therefore, drawing from the scriptures and Christian tradition in light of current scientific knowledge, for more than 20 years now, I have affirmed the following view of marriage and sexual relationships. And in a couple of paragraphs, this is my way of summarizing that. God created human beings as male and female, not wanting either gender to be alone, and made them both in the image of God. As the image of God, the Lord commissioned them to be stewards of the earth. They were created as sexual beings and are not to be ashamed of that. A man and a woman typically leave their parents' households in order to join together as husband and wife and become one flesh in a covenant for life. As husband and wife, God blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Our covenants of sexual faithfulness to God and our spouses are fragile according to the New Testament. Therefore, many passages strongly emphasize various sexual temptations often simply subsumed under the general warnings against sexual immorality. In the midst of these warnings, Jesus and the New Testament as a whole reaffirms that the vitality of marriage bonds depends upon the sexual differentiation of male and female. The New Testament does not view sexual intercourse as essential for healthy, fulfilled life. Thus, sex is less important than we often make it today. On the other hand, these passages make sex more important than the view of casual sex in our present society often does. For sexual intercourse is indeed a powerful gift intended to bond the married couple, a gift effective enough that when it is divorced from this union, it becomes the sins of lust and sexual immorality. Without sex being connected to the past, that is in relation to parents and grandparents, the future through the possibility of children, and the Christian community that lives in light of the vision of the coming reign of God, sex can easily lose its moorings and purpose and thus resist appropriate constraints. So that's the end of my two-paragraph summary. Now, I'm aware that Aubrey has already articulated a Christian view of marriage and discussed homosexuality in relation to that. Thus, today, I happily focus elsewhere. Learnings from the Gay in Christ. A little less than a year ago, I attended an extraordinary and I believe unique conference at the University of Notre Dame. It was called Gay in Christ. At least nine of the 11 presenters at this conference were self-identified as gay, lesbian, or in one case as having some degree of ambiguous gender identity. What made the conference unique, however, was that all of these intelligent presenters saw their central identity as Christian, as being in Christ, 
and thus in light of that identity confirmed the biblical orthodox teaching on marriage. I came away from the conference with a number of learnings, but perhaps as important as anything was a set of reminders, namely that every human being, including those who do not self-identify as heterosexuals, is created in the image of God. Everyone, absolutely everyone, needs to be known and appreciated. Everyone needs meaningful relationships, including deep and spiritual friendships. Thus, all of us who are Christians must embody an openness towards such folk that in real ways expresses the compassion with which we are to be clothed as Christians. I say this was a reminder because I have known this for a long time, but it is easy to forget. You see, I've known gay and bisexual boys and men my whole life and have had some acquaintance with particular lesbians and transgendered folk along the way as well. For instance, my junior year in college, a friend of one of my apartment mates invited me to dinner. He hadn't told me that his friend was gay. After dinner, the man that I will call Rick invited me to bed. I declined his invitation, but I invited him to breakfast. We had breakfast together every couple of weeks for the remainder of my time in Waco, Texas. Rick was not the first and was certainly not the last male friend of mine who was gay or bisexual. I came away from this Gay in Christ conference with a fresh commitment to the following claim. For us as Christians, homosexuality is about all of us and not just some of us at least in the two following ways. So first, it's about all of us, the challenge to be hospitable friends. Before she became a Christian herself, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield said that Christians scared her. Here is one of the deepest ways Christians scared me, she says. The lesbian community was home, and home felt safe and secure. The people that I knew the best and cared about were in that community. And finally, the lesbian community was accepting and welcoming, while the Christian community appeared, and too often is, exclusive, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. Rosaria's story shows how life-changing a welcoming, loving Christian community can be. In 1997, she was in the midst of doing research, as she says, on, quote, the religious right and the politics of hatred against people like me. She was at the time a lesbian, a strong feminist, and a professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse University. In the midst of doing her research, Promise Keepers had an event at her university. She wrote a scathing article for the local newspaper, of the Promise Keepers event. Here is her account of what followed her article. She says, A lot of Christians hated this article, and many wrote letters to me about how I was going to hell. One letter from Presbyterian pastor Ken Smith was different from the rest. I liked its tone, and its author was a neighbor. I responded to this one letter, and Ken and I became friends. Real friends. 
He didn't practice friendship evangelism. I was not a project to Ken. I was a neighbor. And Ken taught me that Christians value neighbors. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me. She wouldn't have imagined stepping in the doors of a church building at that time. So he brought the church to her. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses, she says, on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me at gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock me. It engaged. So when he invited me to dinner at his home to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me as a blank slate. Through this friendship, extraordinarily, if you read her story... After two years, Rosaria, who hated the church and hated God before she met Ken Smith, became a Christian. She says, In understanding myself as a sexual being, responding to Jesus, that is, committing my life to Christ, meant not going backwards to my heterosexual past, but going forward to something entirely new. Later, she says, Please, to the Christians who are reading this and do not struggle with homosexual desires, do not add weight to the burden by thinking that homosexuality is the biggest sin of all sins or that its solution is heterosexuality. The solution to all sin, she says, is Christ's atoning blood. In Christ, we are new creatures. And Rosaria's testimony suggests that she was indeed made new in Christ. Her life changed dramatically, including getting married to Kent Butterfield, a Presbyterian minister, and then adopting several children, to whom she's been married for well over a decade by now. What Rosaria Butterfield helps all of us Christians to grasp, if we have ears to hear, is that too often we have not been loving and welcoming of gays and lesbians like her. When she discusses some of her friends, she not infrequently mentions that they are lesbians or drag queens. But the reader can see immediately that these are real, multi-dimension individuals to her that she truly loves and cares about. In my main chapter of the book that I co-authored seven years ago on homosexuality, I opened by discussing the double love command from Jesus. We heard it read this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or rewording the second part, on another occasion, Jesus says, In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. Soon after I became a Christian, having been raised in a non-Christian home, at age 17, I knew that this teaching which Jesus said was central, needed to be centrally defining for my life. For Jesus seems to say at least two things. First, we cannot truly, we do not truly love God 
if we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. And second, we should not imagine that loving God is reducible to loving our neighbors. It is a double love command. Both are vitally important and must be held together and are relevant for all areas of our lives, including how we think and live with this set of issues. After reading that chapter of our book, a former student and Mennonite pastor sent me the following reflections in an email. Just the other day, he said, I drove an elderly couple from our congregation to visit their gay son's former partner who has HIV and is in declining health. On the drive down, this couple told me their story about how they find out, found out about their son's relationship, how they reacted, etc. This couple told me that they had made it clear to their son and his partner how they felt about what they were doing. But they also told me that they decided early on that they must express love both for their son and for his partner because that's what Jesus would do. They told me that the sexual relationship between the two had ended Regardless, what I find so powerful is that now their son's friend considers them as his mother and father. He also says that they led him to a deeper faith in Christ. To me, this couple has embodied the double love command that you described. I am moved just writing about it. Indeed, they had lived the double love command. Wesley Hill is an evangelical Anglican New Testament scholar. He has written a wonderful book called Washed and Waiting. I was reminded as we studied this book with students in the course I am co-teaching this semester on sexuality that it is a wonderfully thoughtful blend of theological reflections and memoir about why he is committed to celibacy as a young gay Christian. Wesley was one of the speakers at the Gay in Christ conference. After Wesley spoke at this conference, I went up to him and I said, you are giving an incredible gift to all of us in the church in this cultural moment. You are laying before us the challenge to live out serious, costly discipleship in concrete, practical ways. For he and his friends are doing that by living celibate lives in a world both saturated with sexual stimuli and in churches mostly constructed to suit the needs of nuclear families. But as he said in his presentation and in his new book, Spiritual Friendship, if we are to call on brothers and sisters to live celibate lives in our present culture, then we have to nurture richer forms of deep, spiritually enriching friendship that will sustain the lives of those not located in nuclear families, but clearly located within our spiritual community, our first family, the body of Christ. Sometimes I reflect on the challenges, sometimes as I reflect on the challenges issued to us by the lives of Rosaria and Wesley, I wonder, should we expand what we mean by sodomite? Are some of us in this room sodomites? For let us listen afresh to the challenges from Ezekiel and Jesus regarding the sins of Sodom. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Look, says the Lord, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. 
She and her daughters had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Or again, Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Many of us, I don't know how many in this room, but I'm guessing many of us have experienced the transformative power of God in our lives. We have known the mighty works which God in Christ has done among us. Have pride and middle class comfort along with a general lack of compassion for those who are needy caused us to be idle in the face of the real needs of some among us? Have we, in other words, done to our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters what Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees had done? That is, tying up heavy burdens hard to bear and laying them on the shoulders of others while we ourselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. God help us. Sometimes I wonder, should one of our mission statements be to avoid being sodomites? Just a thought. A second way in which, it's, in which it's all about all of us and not just some of us. Battling together toward holiness. I love the passage before us from Colossians today. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. There is a passage somewhat like this in virtually every letter that Paul wrote. This passage reminds us in quite specific terms that we as Christians are to live holy righteous and just lives. It also reminds us that we, mere mortals that we are, cannot begin to do this on our own. We are being made new in Christ through the power of Christ. Among other things named within this passage is the call to put to death sexual immorality. Some of us are very clear about the need to avoid sexual immorality as we should be. But do we equally hear and heed Paul's admonitions later in the same chapter where he says, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In July of 1931, theologian Karl Barth told Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the first meeting they had ever had in a discussion over dinner that Bonhoeffer was, quote, making grace into a principle and bludgeoning everything else to death with it. Quite a statement. Bart was not shy about sharing his opinions about other theologies. And he shouldn't have been. If he had not made that statement, who knows whether we would have the book, The Cost of Discipleship. There was an important learning for Bonhoeffer to appropriate from this challenge. One that, as I just said, would help him to write his extraordinary book, Discipleship. Likewise, some of us, 
need to learn from the way in which good Christian words like love and compassion are used to bludgeon everything else to death as if there is not also a call to live holy lives. But just as Bonhoeffer learned to speak of costly grace, so we continue to insist that all of us are to be clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, even as we challenge one another to live holy lives, including in the area of sexual fidelity. Wesley Hill, in his book, reports on the following statement that was read by the rector of the Evangelical Anglican Church in London, All Souls Church, a very famous church, a very famous uh, internationally known minister, used to be the rector there. Anyway, I don't know whether this was read from the pulpit, perhaps, but this is what the rector said. We also wish warmly to affirm those sisters and brothers already in membership with Orthodox churches who, while experiencing same-sex desires and feelings, nevertheless battle with the rest of us in repentance and faith. For a lifestyle that affirms marriage between a man and a woman and celibacy as the two God-given norms for sexual expression. There is room for every kind of background and past sinful experience among members of Christ's flock as we learn the way of repentance and renewed lives. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians six eleven, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. He ended by saying, this is true inclusivity. As Wesley's friend Denny discussed this statement with Wesley, he said, they get it, don't they, Wes? It's about warm affirmation. It's about battling together for holiness in repentance and faith on a daily basis. It's about the church being the church as we all struggle toward wholeness. Do we see the church as all of us? All of us, Jew and Greek, male and female, gay and straight, battling together toward toward holiness? Or do we single out or ignore our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters? Theologian Cherith Fee Nordling, when she speaks to large groups on sexuality, often begins by asking for a show of hands in response to a series of questions similar to the following. I won't embarrass anyone by asking you to raise your hands today when these questions are mentioned. How many of you have had premarital sex? How many of you have looked at pornography in the last 24 hours or 24 years? How many of you have had affairs? How many of you have been to sex clubs or gay bars? How many of you masturbate regularly using visual stimulation of one kind or another? How many of you have been abused sexually? How many of you are into self-mutilation or eating disorders or other kinds of bodily hatred? How many of you have lusted after someone within the last 12 hours or 12 months? Now, back to quoting her. Finally, she says, All those who are simply confused by ashamed or afraid of your sexuality and would love to wake up each day as a female or male follower of Jesus Christ in relation to other men and women and know that your, quote, very good human life is the particular delight of the triune God who chose you before the creation of the world 
to be you and to be your gods, go ahead and raise your hands. She asked these questions to remind us that the challenge of living sexually faithful lives is a challenge for all of us and not just some of us. And as we discuss these issues, we need to be honest about this. As Wesley Hill's friend said, it's about the church being the church as we all struggle toward wholeness. Let me conclude with these remarks. The title of my sermon was inspired by the title of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield's new book, Unhindered Openness. I was pleasantly surprised to be reminded that this title is taken from the last two verses of the book of Acts. As I reread both the verses and the paragraph within which the verses appear, I noted two things with which I close my sermon. As we read the whole paragraph, that is verses 23 to 31 in chapter 28, we are reminded that things have not changed. It was the case then as now that some will hear the gospel and some will not, and for various reasons. We also know that Paul, as he preached in Rome, suffered for his convictions, eventually, so tradition tells us, being executed in Rome. Some of us imagine that we suffer a little bit for taking positions on issues that are very much out of sync with the defining zeitgeist of our day, but we have not suffered the way Paul and the early apostles did, and let us remember that. But perhaps the more important set of challenges to live with in the last two verses are the following. Paul lived there two whole years, it says, at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and unhindered openness. May we with the same boldness proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about our Lord Jesus Christ, all the while living with an unhindered openness that expresses not only our compassion, but also our trust in a living and saving God. Amen.